The road is not yours alone. Consider your fellow drivers. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The courteous driver is usually the one that avoids collisions over all others. A well-adjusted, mature person makes a good driver because he realizes that driving calls for courtesy and fair play at all times. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low, near and far. On the internet, the airwaves, podcasts, we will go wherever the road takes us so that we can bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. The top-notch driver shows self-control, foresight, and good sportsmanship even when caught in a frustrating traffic jam. He resists the temptation to use his horn uselessly. He does not try to force his way into a seemingly faster lane, but waits until the traffic jam is alleviated. On the ribbons of road that deliver us to new places, each car that thunders by tells its own story. It's a snapshot of people buckled up together, happily, or maybe not so happily, heading toward a mutual destination trapped inside a windblown capsule. It seems like not much can happen there as the hours tick by, but it is exactly the laziness of all those hours, the forced stillness, and the shared time that can make magic out of the mundane. Today on ReSound, driving. Put your radio in park and stay with us. When Charles Johnson was behind the wheel, he never took the shortest path, even though he was paid to. He made wrong turns, U-turns, and some about faces. But nevertheless, he always made it to his destination, somehow. Jonathan Menhivar tells his story. Charles Johnson was a trucker, a long-haul trucker who went everywhere. And he did it without knowing how to read. Couldn't read highway signs. Couldn't read a map. It got him into all sorts of trouble like when he was hauling stuff to New Jersey from New York and had no idea how to decipher the signs on the George Washington Bridge. Hundreds of feet in the air, 12 lanes of traffic, and he's hauling 80,000 pounds, enough weight that you never forget it's there. So I got mixed up. So I had to call a truck. Mayday, mayday, I'm up on the bridge, I'm stuck, get me down, you know. (laughs) Get me down, I'm trying to go to Jersey. If I miss it, I gotta go all the way back around it. And I always thought of that, I said, Here I am up here, can't read. Would anyone believe this? He was just one of those kids who never caught on to reading. He grew up poor in Clarendon, Arkansas, where his family worked as sharecroppers. Charles had asthma, was a sickly kid, and he stayed home from school a lot. And by the third grade, it was pretty clear he wasn't keeping up. As he got older, he was so good at sports, pulling in 30 points a game for the basketball team, They just passed him from grade to grade. By his 30s, he'd moved to St. Louis and got married and did a bunch of different jobs. He washed dishes for a while. For about six months, he ran a gas station his brother owned. But it never seemed like he could support a family on any of those jobs. His brother Paul was making good money as a truck driver, and it seemed to Charles like it was something he could do too. He found out that this trucking company, J.H. Ware, was training and hiring drivers. So he signed up. The details he didn't understand like the words on the truck's instrument panel, he just ignored. The gauges or whatever they're saying, you really, really didn't pay that much attention. They was just there. You just know that you got to work and make a living. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
You know, I mean, you ain't gonna let no gauges stop four or five hundred dollars coming in your home for a week. Uh, and I just know I could do the manual part, how to shift a 21 speed, nine speed, but then we go in the classroom, I would flunk off as it felt, everything. I don't know what they talking about, how to get this stuff off of paper and put it down. I couldn't do it. What made this even harder is that at the time, no one knew Charles couldn't read. Not his wife, not any of his friends, nobody. So it's not like he could just ask for extra help from a teacher because he'd risk outing himself. Luckily for him, he did have an older brother. A really, really nice older brother. A lady from the personnel office at J.H. Ware called me. This is Paul Kelly, Charles' oldest brother. The one who'd always found jobs for him and helped him out. Paul's also been driving a truck for 30 years. Okay, she says, uh, your brother is trying to get a job with us and asked me if it was any way that I could come and attend the class that he was taking for a week. And she says, I will sure give him a job if you come down and help him. I said, well, I'm working right now. So what I did, I taken a week's vacation off. I got my gear together and I went down to Fulton, Missouri and I spent a week in class with him. The orientation did require some reading. I was sitting right there basically by him and making sure that everything that he checked was correct. And what they would do, like give you a world map and ask you the closest route to a certain place and et cetera in the United States, how would you get there? And I had to teach him the straight line is the closest route to any place. Did it seem like he was reading along with you, even if he was slow? Exactly. Once the week of classes was done, Paul took Charles on a trial run down to Atlanta. They drove back through the Carolinas, up over Black Mountain in Tennessee, where Paul taught Charles how to ride the air in his brakes properly so that they wouldn't burn up, how to put it in grandma to slow down. Miraculously, Charles passed the written part of the driving test, which was multiple choice. He used a special technique. I just guess, ain't a mean mighty mole. He got the job. So there he was, license in hand, and really no idea how he was going to pull it off. The job worked like this. The dispatcher gave him what truckers call a bill, which listed the address he was supposed to deliver to and when they expected him. That's it. No directions, no advice at all about how to get there. Sometimes if he had seen the name of the state before, Charles could make it out on the bill. Sometimes he couldn't, but his dispatcher would say enough so that he knew he had to go to Kansas City and that he should head west. And then you go around the truck drivers and you say, I'm going to Kansas City. Anybody going? Then one person said, yeah, I'll come over here. And so I said, man, when are you going to take off? He said, I'm going to take off in about two hours. I said, well, can you wait on me? I'm trying to go with you. He said, well, yeah, I'll wait on you. You'll be my back man. We talk on the radio all the way up. That's how you get there, too. But still, those methods only work some of the time. And that's where his brother Paul came in. So uh, what Charles would do, if he had a problem with his directions, 
Well, he would call me and say, hey, Paul, I'm going to this place. How do I get there? The first time he called me, it was I believe it was the, about the second or third day. I said, hello, uh, Paul. Yeah, and he said, yeah, what's going on? Paul, I got a load going to, uh, I want to say Philadelphia. And then he said, you're going to Philly. Well, you take route, boom, boom, boom. You're going to take Interstate 70 to New Stanton. New Stanton, you pick up Interstate 76. And you take 76, you get over to (sighs) Breezewood, Pennsylvania. All right, let's stop that right there. Now, if you're a person who reads, you'd be writing all this down. And Paul always assumed that's what Charles was doing. I want to say he was writing it down because he would repeat it. I, well, let me tell you now, I'm sitting, I'm sitting at home. I don't know. He got there. I had my ABCs down. Charles couldn't read, but he knew his alphabet. He just had to coax someone into spelling the words for him. Then I'd tell him, how you spell it again? Something like that. And he'd tell me, C-I-T-Y said it. I could write that down. He wasn't a worrisome person, you know, that had to get me out to bed, you know, like 24-7, but (laughs) I got up quite a bit. So actually, I was his map by phone. Oh, matter of fact, I had a map out just for him. Yeah, I had a map at home just for Charles (laughs) on my dinner table. Paul said Charles would call him three or four times a week, and sometimes as often as ten times a week. But even with Paul's help, Charles had a hard time making sense of the route. He still had to make the place names correspond to what he was seeing on those big green signs over the highway, which he calls boards. He could read numbers, and sometimes he could recognize a word. But it wasn't exactly reading. It was like matching up. Pennsylvania on my, on my paper then it would be on the board there. You're now on a Pennsylvania turnpike, you know, and it would match up. So I knew I was there. First reading it, no. But even when he got to the city or town on his bill, he still wasn't done. Now he had to find out the exact address. On his bill, for instance, it would say 1925 Light Road. But Charles didn't know that, so he'd have to ask somebody. Usually his best bet was to find a cop. I would give it to the police officer, and he would say, oh, Light Road, right down there. Then I got Light Road in my head, and I don't forget it. And so I said, go here, and I said, could you write it down for me? So Charles figured out a way to do the job. But the way he was making it work was also making him fail at the job, because he was always late. And when you're late, they take late payments out of your check. And so I called my wife, said, you get the check? She said, yeah, I got it. It's so small. I didn't say, honey, I can't read. Uh, I had to just shut my mouth. It was, uh, it was a nightmare. I couldn't read. I was confused on the road. Wasn't bringing enough money in. The loads was always late. Confusion, confusion, confusion. So what can you do? Did you ever feel like you should just quit? Uh, every day. No matter what, Jonathan, I say I gotta do it. 
I took the bills, I told the old lady and my daughter that I would be going to New York. And I had to get to New York, man. So he was only driving a truck to keep his family together. But he never made good money at it. And being away from home so much ended up hurting his marriage. Before long, he and his wife split up. He quit trucking after he fell asleep at the wheel and drifted into a ditch. His brother Paul was glad he finally quit. He'd worried about him every day he was on the road. And when he looks back on it, he's not sure why he never figured out that Charles couldn't read. And why I felt like that, I don't have a clue. That's strange, isn't it? (laughs) Charles was, I don't know if you spent much time around a person who who's not that intelligent as far as books goes and reading. Uh, growing up in our environment, there was quite a bit of this around. And it was something that we didn't pay special attention to. So uh, Charles is news, I guess, to you guys' ears. But like I say, I worked around it all my life. And these guys can fake they can fake you out. I mean, you don't really have a clue that they don't really understand how to read. And he actually, you know, got away with it. I It frightens me more now than it did then because I didn't know much about it. But now when he told me that he was having such a problem, then it, I I have feelings for him. So, uh, where are we going to go? This is, I know the direction. This is south we headed. Charles reads now. So driving is different for him. And so he took me for a drive to show me what that was like. So before, when you would drive down, like, would you be even, would you be able to tell what businesses were? I none of them signs. All I did is notice my target from, from A to Z. Now, as far as reading the signs, like LaSalle right here, I didn't read that. I didn't read no LaSalle. I just, just was a blank. Now when I travel along the expressway and I'm going down the road, which I've been down there blind, now I got some eyes, I'm seeing, so I'm reading like Kentucky, 40 miles away. Uh, when you get there, it said, welcome to Kentucky, you know. I said, I passed this place over and over, and I, <laughs> I just came on in. <laughs> so it's so much different today. It's so much different today. <laughs> Oh, boy. We go to make a right turn, but then Charles sees a familiar black and white sign. Now I see one way. That means I can't go there. I would have went in there if, if, when I couldn't read. Yeah. yeah. I've been on plenty one ways, you know, and it says one way, and the police come down. I said, officer, I'm so sorry. Uh, I didn't uh, see the signs. How much easier does it make getting around the city? Oh man, it's, it's just it's just it's just that you're alive. I, I don't know if it's so much easier. It's just that you are alive. After he quit trucking, Charles went through a really rough period, and then ten years ago, he sort of pulled himself together. He applied for a civil service job, but he failed the entrance exam so badly that it was finally clear to someone that he couldn't read. He was 45 years old. That's how long it took. Instead of a job, they handed him an address for a literacy program. He still goes there all the time. He tells me he's reading this book for a class there. And when he pulls it out of his briefcase, it's not what I expected. 
what book I'm reading now. I got to do a report on this simple book. Simple book called Dr. Sue. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. If I was to show that to people, they would say, wow, I don't know. They would, they would really try to embarrass you. But at home by myself, I'm happy with just reading this. This is better than reading at anything at all. Just a simple book. It says one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And then it have the, the colors. That's what helps me a whole lot. So I look at the pictures. That, no, the, 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 the fat one has a yellow hat. Charles told me that his whole life he felt like a fake and that that was frightening and exhausting. Now he says he feels liberated. And even just being able to read this little bit or being able to make out his phone bill or follow the instructions on his prescription bottles makes his life so much easier. Like he'd been traveling in a foreign country all this time and now he's home. Everything's different. Now when he gets lost, he says, he can read his way back. Don't Drive Like My Brother was produced by Jonathan Menhivar and first aired on This American Life back in 2005. Even when we weren't in the car, I didn't tell him my stories the way he told me his. Australian writer Sophie Townsend used to spend a lot of time in the car with her husband, driving just for the sake of driving. There, in the small space between the dashboard and the headrest, stories were told, new routes were carved out, and memories were created. But Sophie doesn't drive those routes any longer, and her memory of them has, against her will, started to fade. I like long country drives, counting cows or horses in the paddocks beside the roads. I like being the passenger, because driving you don't get to look so much, you certainly don't get to count. And you don't get to listen to the music with the same concentration. When the weather was right, and it was cold and misty, we'd listen to the music of Fellini movies as we drove. That's the best way to drive, in the cold with the thermos of coffee between driver and passenger, watching the way the landscape gets sharp and grey in the clear, thin air. I used to watch the way he took the bends in the road and pass him snacks, and I'd listen to him tell his stories. Some of the stories he'd tell on every car trip, usually prompted by me, because I loved the familiar rhythm of stories I knew. And I wonder now if he knew that I already knew them and he was just humouring me. Some of the stories changed. The one where his boss was unfair and no one listened to him, but he was right. He talked through the twists and turns of bureaucracy and battles with the Machiavellian co-worker. 
I listened to it over the years and when he left out the interesting bits, I'd have to remind him how it went. And once he asked me if I'd prefer to tell his story. No, I wouldn't, but you should get your story straight. He didn't need to talk. He could have just listened to the Fellini. Chat, I'd say. I like chat. His concession was telling me his stories. I didn't make him listen to mine, because listening requires extra concentration. And on those misty roads when everything's in fog, you don't want to split your focus. So I didn't tell him my stories. And actually, even when we weren't in the car, I didn't tell him my stories the way he told me his. He had so many stories and knew so much and he was older and wiser than me. And it just felt natural to listen rather than tell. We created stories together and sometimes we'd tell each other those because they were our favourites. But I'm not sure I told him many of the ones I'd created before him. His stories were endless. The time he was eight and he nearly burnt the house down. The time his mother smacked him for playing pirate treasure with her engagement ring. Taking LSD and driving across the harbour bridge. The ill-fated decision to buy white denim jeans. The motorbike accident. The Chinese takeaway story. Buying the cheap Armani suit. The housewarming party. And then, he died. And because I don't like to drive, and because I like to be the passenger, and because I miss his stories, I don't go on those roads anymore, counting cows and horses and listening to Fellini music. Sometimes I drive our girls up the coast, but not too far and never in the mist and I drive the highways and freeways because I like to go in straight lines and I never paid attention to his scenic routes. And the girls, they listen to music on their phones and I don't know what happened to the Fellini CD. I'm losing his stories and losing his voice and the story I remember so often now is the one where he gets sick and sicker and angry and sad and in that story we hold it together as best we can but it's not a great story to be your defining one so I think about his stories a lot and I try to piece them back together and I think about other stories of ours like the wedding the babies the renovations the arguments the holidays Paris, picnics, the trees he saved on the street we lived in, moving house, school drop-offs and pick-ups and scabby knees and fevers. But the last story keeps coming up to the surface, the way last stories do. Sometimes I go out now, on my own, and I meet people for the first time, and I trade stories. And the other night, in a loud and crowded bar, I told one of my stories. I was pregnant and I had these mad cravings. I don't know how it came up, but it was the one about the cocoa pops. I was pregnant. 
and I wanted Cocoa Pops for dinner. And my husband brought home chocolate-coated cornflakes. And I tried to stay calm, but truly, truly, I wanted to kill him. There were only small packets. And I do my, you bought what line? It's a funny line, the way I tell it. On the edge of hysteria, with my hand above my head as if I might plunge a knife into his heart. And the man laughed and said, and did the marriage last? And I took a deep breath and I said, he died. And that's my punchline. And the man laughed because sometimes that's what people do when they're presented with my particular punchline because their mouth hasn't caught up with their brain. And then the dreadful silence and the, oh Christ, I'm sorry. But I'm sorry and embarrassed and really horribly angry that this keeps happening. And I wonder if I'd said, oh, I'm single now, it would have been better. If I hadn't mentioned the death, we could have just gone on with our drink and chat. But no, he would have said something like, well, of course, what a bastard to buy you chocolate-covered cornflakes. No wonder. And I would have laughed, but I'm fairly certain I would have felt the need to defend him, correct the record, get my story straight. So I went home and I thought of his stories and our stories, and I thought of my stories too. And I wondered when and how this current story might become easier to tell. And I downloaded some Fellini and went to sleep, feeling the rhythm of the bends in the road. Stories and Driving was written and read by Sophie Townsend and produced by Jesse Cox with sound design by Lewis Mitchell for Radiotonic from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Radio National's Creative Audio Unit, run by our very own former Third Coast Artistic Director, Julie Shapiro. Coming up after the break, a bus ride to Mexico, a car ride to a new reality, and a GPS system that has ESP. Arriving at destination. Are you not going to get out? Stay with us. Don't drive too long a stretch without rest. To help offset drowsiness, keep plenty of fresh air in the car. Engage in conversation or listen to the radio and listen to the radio and listen to the radio and drink coffee or strong tea. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. Today, we're listening to stories about driving. On any given day, where we plan to go and where we end up may be two very different places. Case in point, this story from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Wiretap. 
In it, the driver enlists the help of her GPS system and lives to regret it. Welcome to your personal navigation system. Head southwest on Bay Street towards Albert Street. At the next light, make a right onto Hampton Street. Merge into the right lane behind the minivan with the family that doesn't fall asleep in front of the TV alone every night. Turn right onto Allen Road. Continue on Allen Road for one kilometer. Do not picture your ex-husband Allen. Do not picture him sleeping with his yoga instructor during your honeymoon in Acapulco. Turn left onto Lakeshore Boulevard. Continue along Lakeshore Boulevard. Recall the summers you spent at the Lakeside Country House that your father sold to feed his gambling addiction. Turn right onto Oakwood Avenue. Slow down as you drive past your first boyfriend's house, Donnie. Don't stop entirely. He might still live there with his parents. Take a slight left onto Wellington. Drive past the donut shop that you frequented as a child. Do not stop to drown your problems in deep fried dough. You are now off track. Recalculating. In point two kilometers, take a left onto Benson Avenue. Drive past the company you've devoted 11 years of your life to. Turn right into the parking lot. Circle around over and over until the security guard tells you to get lost. At the next light, make a right. Drive past the schoolyard where Miranda once asked you in front of the whole class why you smelled like cabbage and Ted emptied a garbage can on your head and you ran around in the snow with the can on your head till you smashed into a maple tree and collapsed to the ground. Turn left at the park. Make a slight left onto ramp 17. Merge onto the bridge Drive straight ahead. 
resist the urge to drive off the side into the river. That's it. Just a few more minutes until you're safe on the other side. You're almost there. Turn right onto Country Road. Arriving at destination. Are you not going to get out? Your mother will be happy to see you. What are you doing? Where are you going? Recalculating. Recalculating. You are lost. We are lost. We are lost. We are lost. Recalculating. Drive Straight Ahead was written by Mira Bertwintonic for Wiretap on the CBC. Funny thing, while it's pretty easy to drive straight ahead, it's a lot harder to keep the conversation going in a straight line. And maybe that's not such a bad thing after all. Chris Garcia was driving with his dad when their conversation veered down a road that seemed to come out of nowhere. This American Life producer Nancy Updike brings us their story. I talked to Chris Garcia, and he told me about a drive he took about a year and a half ago from Manhattan Beach in Los Angeles to his parents' house, about a 25-minute trip. Chris was driving, and his dad was in the front seat next to him. We start heading east on Manhattan Beach Boulevard, and then we make a right on Pacific Coast Highway, and then a left on Artesia. So they're in the car heading south, and uh, they got the radio on. They're listening to oldies, sharing a bag of chips. They've driven this route probably hundreds of times. But something odd was happening in the car, so Chris started recording their conversation on his phone. It's not a great recording, but you can, you can hear it. Chris and his dad speak Spanish to each other, as you'll hear in a second, and his dad was pointing out the window as they were driving. Uh, he says, oh, this is the, the famous thing, the... Um it's the, how do you call it? And then I say, Miracosta. Miracosta. Eh? high school. My high school. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, high school. So Chris knew when he was taking this drive with his dad that his father had Alzheimer's. He'd gone to the doctor. He'd been diagnosed. But this drive was the first time Chris had been with his dad when he'd forgotten something so familiar. Yeah, I'd never seen him uh, forget a- anything, really. Like, I know that's a big thing about... Uh, dementia and Alzheimer's as people become forgetful but he hadn't really exhibited those types of signs before. And where are you driving at this point? Uh, right now we still are, we're still on Artesia. And the next thing he says he says, did you play a lot did you play a lot at, what's it called, at the school, Miracosta? And I said, play what? And then he says uh, for example, baseball, which to me was very alarming because that's all we did growing up. And it's a rite of passage among 
Cubans, you know. We played baseball all the time since I probably could stand up. I've been playing baseball with my dad. And um, I couldn't believe that he didn't remember that I had played baseball. I, it, I was in such shock that I, I just continued to speak as if we were having a completely regular conversation. And then he says, Maricosta, what, um, what place, what did you, what did you do? And what he meant was what position, what I inferred from it was that what position did you play? <laughs> I say first base and he's like, ah, oh, great. And pitcher? Lefty or righty? I say lefty. And then he starts laughing and he goes, man, whew, if I were around then, I would have, I would have shown you how to throw the ball. I would have, I would have taught you at all. I was a, I was a pitcher. I was a good one. He's like, look, I'm a lefty too. And then he starts, you know, pretend throwing the ball with his left arm. So they're about halfway home at this point. Chris had turned onto Hawthorne Boulevard, and his family used to live right off Hawthorne. So they're passing uh, by this diner they had all these funny memories from called Norm's, the, the mall they always used to go to. But Chris's father was not recognizing anything. He, he had no idea where they were. And it was totally unnerving him. He just was looking at the streets and asking Chris, you know, where are we, trying to orient himself. I said, we're taking this street to Western. And then my dad says, I can't get out at Western. Um, I don't have enough to cover that fare. I can't go that far. So he, he thinks, now he thinks he's in a taxi. Yeah, now he thinks I'm a cab driver. And he calls me young man. He goes, uh, where are you going, este muchacho, young man? And you could hear it in my voice, and I'm like, hmm? Um, I say we're going down to Western, and then we're making a right, and that will get us home. And I keep on reiterating, home, la casa, our home, I'm taking you home. And none of this is really computing to him. When you were a kid, um, how was his sense of direction? Completely stellar sense of direction. When I was a student at Berkeley, my dad came to visit me. And I had class all day. And so my dad just went out by himself. And when I I got home, my dad wasn't even home yet. He comes home an hour later and he's like yeah uh well i started off i went to oakland i went to the farmer's market there i almost got a baseball game but i didn't and then i took bart across to san francisco and then i went to golden gate park met this wonderful russian man who was very sweet and then uh you know saw that stowe lake place there and walked across the beach you call that a beach it's really foggy and cold uh anyway really fun day that's the type of sense of direction and the type of like sense of adventure that my dad had where you could just leave him in a city and he would just kill it and he 
uh, pretty much had one of the most amazing memories of anyone I'd ever known. So they're just about home at this point, and Chris had been planning on turning off of Hawthorne Boulevard onto 190th and then onto Western, like he usually did. But he was so caught up in what was happening in the car with his dad that he blew right past 190th, drove all the way to Carson, turned there, and that's when his dad turned to him and said, Where are you from? He's like, where are you from, my friend? And I go, what, what do you, what do you mean? Where am I from? And I say, I'm from here. And he says, the United States. And I say, yeah. Um, and then very sweetly, he turns to me, and he goes, I'll appreciate th- this ride my entire life. You are a very good and decent person. Um, still, you know, sweet, charming guy, even though he didn't know that I was his son anymore. You could hear the the indicator, the turn signal, and I tell him it's the next block, 218. Which is our block. And is you sure this is street? Just let me out. And I say, Dad, I'm taking you all the way home. <laughs> and, and then he goes, Which is like, he's going like, What a stud. And he's like, <laughs> To me. <laughs> He's like, what a stud. Many, many, many thanks, compadre. Like, thanks, brother. And then he goes, uh, may God... Oh, that's where I live. <laughs> so all of a sudden he recognizes it. Yeah. And we walk up to the apartment, and I open the door, and I go, um... Here we are, Dad, and um, and he was like, "You were the one that was driving me," and I go, and I go, "Yeah," and he goes, uh, "Really?" and I go, "Yeah," and he goes, "Oh, you were the one that was talking all this and that and all that stuff," and I go, "Yeah, Dad, I gave you the ride." <laughs> My dad's like, he's, it's such a sweet tone in his voice. He's like, really? Oh, ah, and he's just like, oh, I can't believe it. Root Talk was produced by Chris Garcia and Nancy Updike for This American Life. It first aired in 2013. For most of us, routine drives are pretty short, maybe 20 minutes here or there. But for WBEZ education reporter Linda Lutton, a 20-minute drive is just another 
bend in the road. She's regularly made journeys that are days long, stopping for endless hours along the way. Now you can go along with her. And here's a hint. It's not exactly a limo to Las Vegas. Attention, please. Everybody with your tickets on your hand. Chicago is connected to a world of small Mexican towns that most people have never heard of. If I want to visit my mother-in-law in provincial Mexico, I can walk to a bus station in my Chicago neighborhood and buy a direct ticket to Zamora, Michoacan. Well, they call it a direct ticket. You'll see what that means. The ride takes 48 hours, two days and two nights. The names of the bus lines traveling to Mexico are meant to make you think the trip will fly by. There's El Conejo, the rabbit. There's Tornado. We're traveling this time on El Expreso. Right. Every time you start one of these trips, you consider the variables. And you hope. So tell me about the conditions of the bus here. How, oh, how lucky are we? Beautiful, beautiful. We got Wi-Fi. We got a... Uh, switch where you can uh, recharge the battery. Our bus driver says his goal is to make everybody happy, which means 80s music for him, back-to-back movies for us, all at the same time. Like most people on the bus, my family is here for one reason. It's cheaper than a plane. Welcome and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for choosing an espresso. I'm sorry for the delay. Every two-day bus trip starts with a little welcome speech, and every speech includes this rule. Do not use the bus bathroom, basically unless you're dying. We do not want strong odors on the bus, the driver says. From the moment you buy your ticket, you're stepping into a different world. A world you do not control, a world where things will not go as planned. Small things and big things. The 1 p.m. bus leaves at 2.30. It's not too bad. The Wi-Fi? Actually, no Wi-Fi. Last year, we were stranded for 20 hours in Matamoros. Another time, one of the bus's side windows just fell out. The driver went back to look for it on I-35. No luck. So we just kept going, the 100-degree Texas heat blowing through the bus all the way to Dallas. These bus companies have been sued over accidents. I try not to think about that when I buy the tickets. If you do this trip a few times, you get to know all the stops. Effingham, Illinois. Matthews, Missouri. That's where we are right now. Next will be Jackson, then Lafayette, Houston, and McAllen. And on the Mexico side, Monterrey, Matehuala, San Luis, Zelaya, Zamora. We brush our teeth in the gas station bathrooms. Little by little, you get to know where everyone is from, where everyone's going. Places that have sent generations of immigrants to the Chicago area, mostly Michoacan, Zacatecas, Jalisco. The student from Beloit is going to Durango. Yeah, so it's like another 13 hours after Houston. I don't even know. I'm like... I get, I get motion sickness, <laughs> so I'm like half awake, half asleep the whole ride. I get to know a lot about the lady from Guanajuato, how her daughter got married at age 16, how she made a deal with God to get her immigration papers. Eight hours down, 40 to go. First night on the bus. Here you go, here's your blanket. 
So while the bus companies in Chicago sell you direct tickets to little towns in Mexico, that doesn't mean you're riding the same bus all the way. In Houston, all 46 of us get off. And that's when I meet Eliseo Orejel. He's traveling with his wife and three kids. They're from LaGrange. And it just so happens they're going to the same town we are. Which luggage is yours? Here, everything. Up to there. Oh my because gosh. we're allowed 400 pounds. I'm like 340 something, 345 pounds. You're bringing 345 pounds to yeah. Mexico? Yeah. Yeah, but half, more than half of this is staying over there. So. Eliseo's kids like the bus. Do you think we're going to have any adventures on this bus trip? Uh, yes. So. Really? Like what? Like, um, one time a wheel popped. We could just feel like um, the bus was getting lower on the back, and it took a long while, and then it popped again. I can beat that. One time, I actually drove the bus. Well, it was a passenger van at that point, but still. The driver wanted to make some extra cash by dropping a passenger off at her out-of-the-way village. It was rainy season. We got stuck in the mud. So I drove, the driver and my husband pushed, and our kids watched from the edge of the muddy farm field. After an hour or so in Houston, we're on our way. Though Eliseo, the guy going to the same place we are, is not on our new bus. Our feet are swollen from sitting so long. People doze. Behind me, a senora talks on her cell phone. Next time, I'm going by plane, she tells someone. The granddaughter traveling with her gets on the phone next with an older sister. Imagine miles and miles of this. You know, I'm so lucky, Lupe. Because you can't touch me. I'm all the way over here. You're all the way over there. You can't do nothing. I'm bored. Bueno, buenas noches. The thing about traveling on these bus lines, every time we pull into a station, we wonder, what will the next bus be like, and when will it leave? In McAllen, things don't go well. Not everyone fits on the next bus. The official says he's only boarding to three cities. He promises he has two other buses in the wings, but nobody quite believes him. Finally, another bus does show up, and so does Eliseo Orejel, the guy with the 345 pounds of luggage. What a mess. Now it's really mess. At this point, we've been traveling 30 hours. We're six hours behind schedule. This is our third bus. And that is the context for what happens next. The driver gets on the loudspeaker. Can you hear me, he asks. We're right on the border now. Ladies and gentlemen, he says, we've come to a fiscal checkpoint. I hate to tell you this, but the customs official has let me know that we are going to have to take everything, everything, off the bus. Everything we have in the compartments underneath the bus, everything inside the bus. And we're going through customs. 
However, the bus driver says, the customs official has mentioned something. If we take up a little donation, he says, we can avoid customs completely. This kind of shakedown has happened on every bus trip I've ever taken to Mexico. Have your money out, the driver says. I'll come by to collect. The driver suggests a $5 donation per person, which passengers revise to $5 per family. Once he's been through the bus, the driver steps out into the cool Reynosa air. He and another guy in a button-down shirt compare big wads of cash. Welcome to Mexico, the passengers quip from inside the bus. When the driver comes back, we drive right under the checkpoint with the giant red letters that say Mexico. Incredibly, we change buses two more times after this, including in Monterrey, where a young official tries a trick I have never heard before. He tells us there will be no buses for 10 days. So when one appears only two hours later and our names are called, it feels like a gift. And the LaGrange family going to the same place we are? Not on this bus. But along with all the delays, there are homemade tortillas at a roadside restaurant, barbacoa tacos, soup, the warm sun, and the thought of piñatas and weddings and quinceanera parties, all the family waiting for us. And as we get further and further into Mexico, the frustration in the bus dissipates. It's been a pretty good trip, the guy in front of me says. The bus official at our very last stop, 51 hours down, four to go, sees it like this. The good thing is, you're almost there. Have a very nice trip. Welcome to Mexico. I was not going to record on the return trip to Chicago, but I couldn't help myself when this happened. That beep has been going off all night. Buses inside Mexico are equipped with alarms that sound every time the driver goes over the speed limit. These international buses don't usually have those alarms, but yep, we got one. All night long, no one complained. I feel that's a very Mexican response, I tell my Mexican husband. What would be the point of complaining, he asks. The driver can't do anything but go slower, and we don't want to go slower. But he agrees, if this had been a bus full of gringos, they definitely would have complained. The bus beeped all the way to northern Mexico. It was still dark, but ahead, I could see a long, thin line of lights running left and right across the highway, the border. The thing about taking the bus to Mexico, you actually physically feel the distance between the two places that make up your life. You feel the border with its checkpoints and flashing lights and immigration officials. On the way back to Chicago, the bus drivers put on Mexican movies, heightening nostalgia for the place we were leaving behind. The narrow black highway stretched out like a thread between Chicago and Mexico, the bus moving along it. Linda Lutton, WBEZ.
Bus to Mexico was produced by WBEZ education reporter Linda Lutton. At the very moment that you will be hearing this program, I myself am on the road dropping my oldest child off at college. We made it out there in a marathon 18-hour, one-day drive, her plugged in, listening to comfort music, and me staring down a lot of flat roads that slowly become, both literally and figuratively, mountainous. And now, it's just me coming back. 18 more hours, and nothing in the rear view but an empty car. I love long drives, though this is not one I relish. They give you lots of time to think. Transition. Give your mind its leash. On this trip home, the car is a lot quieter, and I'm in no rush, not my usual 80 miles per hour. Because despite heading home to the exact same address, I know it's going to be a very different place. 18 hours to go, and that's fine by me. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You got a fast car.